The very wealthy English Baron Fitzgerald had only one child, a son, who understandably was the apple of his eye, the center of his affections, and only child, the focus of his little family's attention. The son grew up, but in his early teens, his mother died, leaving him and his father, Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald grieved over the loss of his wife, but devoted himself to fathering, his, fathering their, their son. In the passing of time, the son became very ill and died in his late teens. In the meantime, Fitzgerald's financial holdings greatly increased. The father had used much of his wealth to acquire masterworks of art. And with the passing of more time, Fitzgerald himself became ill and died. Previous to his death, he carefully prepared his will with explicit instructions as to how his estate would, should be settled. He had directed that there would be an auction in which his entire collection of art would be sold. Because of the quantity and the quality of his artworks and his collections, which were valued in millions of English pounds, a huge crowd of prospective buyers gathered expectantly. Among them were many museum creators and private collectors eager to bid. The artworks were displayed for viewing before the auction began, and among them there was one painting which received little attention. It was of poor quality and done by an unknown local artist. It happened to be the portrait of Fitzgerald's only son. When the time came for the auction to begin, the, auction, the auctioneer gathered the crowd to attention, and before the bidding began, the attorney read first from the will, which the will of Fitzgerald, which instructed that the first painting to be auctioned was the painting of my beloved son. The poor quality painting didn't receive any bidders, well, except one. The only bidder was the old servant who had known the son and had loved him and served him and for sentimental reasons offered the only bid. For less than one English pound, he bought the painting. The auctioneer stopped the bidding and asked the attorney again to read the will. The crowd was hushed, it was quite unusual and the attorney read from Fitzgerald's will, whoever buys the painting of my son gets the entire art collection. This auction is now over. In a much similar way, those who know the Son of God, who are in Christ, are heirs to an a, a an inheritance that is amazing in all its glory and all the scope that it entails. I want to welcome all of you to our study of Romans. And as each of you look back through the course of your lives, I think we all realize that the greatest moments of revelation, of growth, spiritual growth and understanding, came in the midst of our greatest trials and suffering. Yet few of us relish pain. We, we, we don't like things that hurt. 
And we wrestle with statements that Jesus made, like, they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Or like A.W. Tozer, who wrote, It is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt them deeply. Perhaps it is because it reveals within us a deeply entrenched selfishness. We want glory without suffering. We want success without blood, sweat, and tears. And our Christian life is a lot like pregnancy and childbirth. We want the newness of life without the pain and the mess. Well, this morning I want to take each of you deeper into the heart of God and help you understand some things, uh, some very positive aspects about suffering. In fact, it seems kind of like an oxymoron. Suffering gives us a perspective that nothing else will. And it doesn't just work like that for us. It even worked like that for God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Though he were yet a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Speaking of Jesus Christ, there were things that were added to Christ, to God, that he learned through suffering. So suffering adds a dimension to our lives. Now I want to equip you with several truths so that when you go through suffering, that you've got something to hold to and that in the midst of the suffering that you don't lose your perspective. Furthermore, I want to help all of you to understand something about parenting. It seems like that uh, instead of insulating our children and handing everything to them for a life of ease, one of the best things that you can do for your children is to acquaint them with hardship and suffering. Because in so many well-meaning ways, we cripple our children for life in the kingdom of God. Now, I know in all reality this morning, the message I'm about to share is really for the wrong audience. It would be much better suited if I would be speaking to those in a hospital or perhaps to a family who's making funeral arrangements. Perhaps someone elderly who has spent their life living for Christ and now lies forgotten in a nursing home. Or someone who's received Christ and is now rejected by their family. How desperate will we need to see the benefits of suffering? If you would, uh, you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, or you can just look at the PowerPoint. In verse 16, it says, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In these latter chapters, as we walk through them, we learn something about justification, how that God's redeeming work toward man called grace, and how sure that work is, and how immutable the foundation which we rest upon. We even looked at our own, uh, the mire of our own humanity, the darkness, the troubles, the hopelessness of Romans chapter 7. And then in Romans chapter 8, we step into, and it's kind of like a flower unfolding. We are introduced to the Spirit of God. That marvelous work that God does in reeling sin in our lives. He takes off those old grave clothes that we still have hanging on to us, those chains that held us in bondage. 
And the Holy Spirit works like God's mighty arm. He draws us close to God. And, it's, and he whispers something deep within each of us that you now belong to me. You belong to, this, you belong to God. But you know, because of the deep ravages of sin that some of you have walked through, you need to hear this truth over and over and over again. So let me give you a deeper understanding of your inheritance. And the reasoning that God sets forth is from his perspective. There are so many things that we look at, spiritual truths that we look from our, our perspective. I was just uh, sharing with our, uh, the, the baptism discipleship class this, uh, how that we look at our, from our human perspective. And just one of the things is uh, we often hear new converts use the term, I found God. Well, God paints a different perspective than that. In John 6, 44, he says, No man cometh to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And again, in John uh, chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of the sons of God, he says, which are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is only one reason and from God's perspective that we ever come to know God, ever come to walk with God, and that is because God has drawn us, has reached down, has picked us up, has drawn us close to him. And in that drawing, we experience God. We supposedly find God. You see, from God's perspective, we never find him. It's he drawing us. And so the perspective about our inheritance, the things, the reasoning that God sets forth is from his perspective, not from ours. It look, and some of the things that I'm going to share with you are going to challenge you, what you're, what you, how you think. Now, there are a hundred different reasons why earthly parents would disinherit their children out of, of carnality. But this is not so in God's economy. The child of God will inherit. And that is absolutely no possibility for the child of God not to inherit. Now, from our perspective, it doesn't look like that. And I'm sure that some of you are this morning are sitting here and can think of uh, 20 different reasons why you might not inherit. But what you need to understand, you need to hear it again and again, that everything God does is by grace. God owes us nothing. There's nothing good in us. None of us can earn our inheritance. Just as salvation is by grace, so our inheritance is by grace as well. Now in Luke chapter 10, there's a certain lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, he says, you know the requirements? What are they? And the lawyer responds with the two greatest commandments of the entire law, the sum of it. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself. In those two commandments, he not only indicted himself, he condemned himself. You see, a man does not get to heaven 
by thinking about these two commandments. Nor does he get to heaven by aiming to do these two commandments. Nor does he get to heaven by partially doing these two commandments. You get, you inherit eternal life by doing these commandments every time, all the time, with absolute perfection. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you earn eternal life. It's a little like you being stranded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I come along, and you ask, what must I do to get to land? And I say, well, you must swim with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Or there's a second option. You can choose to come aboard my ocean liner. Wisely, you choose the latter. You come aboard this ocean liner. Now, what happens on this ocean liner, what people do on this ocean liner are various different things. You can choose to rest. You can choose to jog around the deck. Or you can choose to go down the hold and move the cargo from side to side. But none of those things will change you getting to land. The reason you get to land is not what you're doing on it. It's because you're in the ship, on the ship. The same is true with our inheritance. Our inheritance is because we are in Christ and our sonship and our inheritance cannot be separated. Now, let me show you something about our inheritance that is absolutely different from all other testaments and wills. It is, it's phenomenal when you think about it. In the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and once a year sprinkle blood for the sin of the people. And you, as we noticed from the, with the writer, the writer from the Hebrews, he says in chapter 9, verse 11, But Christ, being a high priest of good things to come, being a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, and having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and for the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean and sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, in a, in a, when a, in a testament, so when someone does a testament, it is done by a testator, or a, and Jesus Christ being our mediator and the testator put forth a testament. Now, in, in order for that testament to become active, we notice what it says in verse 16, for where a testament is, there is must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You guys know if you're in a will, in order for that will to become active, and you receive the inheritance, the testator, the one who did the testament, has to die. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength while the testator liveth. That, 
that will means nothing to you as long as the person is living. But what is different is that Jesus Christ was the testator. As a mediator, he brought forth the testament. And he died, which made the testament, put the testament in force. But what is absolutely different, what is separates this testament from all other wills is that he also rose again and became the executor of his own testament. That is why this testament is absolutely sure. Notice what he says in verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressors that were under the first testament, that they were, are called and might receive the promise, notice what it says, of an internal inheritance. Our inheritance is eternal. It is not of five days, five years. It is eternal in nature. Now, understanding that, Understanding the sureness of your inheritance. Let's go back to Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 17. God kind of slips something in. If then children, then heirs, and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That little word, if, is not about doubt. It's not if maybe. It means if indeed. In fact, some paraphrases just put in the word since and which is it's on since we are children then heirs and joint heirs with Christ and since we will suffer with him we will be glorified together the first thing you need to understand about suffering is that suffering is certain for every child of God you can absolutely bank on if you're a child of God if you're going to be part of the inheritance of God, you will experience suffering. It's not optional. Now, God doesn't put this out to discourage you. He's saying suffering is part of this big package that's in front of you, waiting for you. In fact, it's just a small part we're going to discover of this package. You know, in the past, I've taught you that God doesn't waste suffering. He uses pain to test us, to discipline us, to strengthen us, uh, to shape us. And today he adds one more to the list of reasons. And that is suffering leads, it has a purpose, and that purpose is that it, it leads to glory. You see, God isn't this sadistic killjoy who sits up above us and squeezes us and gets some joy out of watching us squirm. I want to see want you to see uh, two two verses in in 1 John chapter 3. I want you to understand something about us. Those two verses it says behold John is writing behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now there's in in this there's some things we know and there's some things we don't know. Now, notice what it says in verse 2. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. In this process of becoming like Christ, 
we do not know the things that are in front of us that God is going to use to shape us to be like Jesus Christ. Um, we don't know the trials that are ahead of us. Uh, for some of you, it could be the loss of your mate. For others of you, it might be that wrenching statement from the doctor, it's terminal. Please get your affairs in order. For others of you, it could be the, the waywardness of a child or a friend, that aching within as you watch them like demons walk away and turn to the world. That's something we do not know, the tools which God is going to use to shape us. But there are some things we do know if you look in this verse. We know the ending. Notice what it says for... But we know that he shall appear and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The ending is going to be we will see Jesus and we will be like him. You see, God has a purpose in suffering. God does not waste pain. The ending is we know we will be like Christ. We will be, be, be removed from sin's presence. There's going to be a glory in this. Now, someone wrote, pain knocked upon my door and she said she, she, said she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her, but, but bade her go away. She entered in like my own shade she followed after me, and from her stabbing, stinging sword, not a moment was I free. And then one day, another knock, most gently at my door. I said, no, pain is here. There's not room for more. And then I heard his tender voice. It is I, be not afraid. And from the day he entered in, oh, the difference that it's made. We recently just hired a guy on our group, and in talking with him, he didn't take long for me to understand that he knew Jesus Christ. He said, I came to know Jesus Christ after a nervous breakdown. He said, I went to a local pastor, and I shared with him all my problems, and for what I've surmised, his breakdown was because of the breakup of his marriage. So I talked with the pastor about all my problems and said, even then, he said, I, he introduced me to Christ and I couldn't accept. He said, I went home so that night. He said, I got on my knees, came to the end, prayed that simple little sinner's prayer, and I received him. He said, you know, I couldn't live without him today. He said, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ it's my Savior. You see, with suffering, there comes a question. It's not, it's not why. We know the reason of suffering is because God wants us to be like his son. The question is, is it worth it? The question in the midst of suffering, we ask, is, is it worth going through this to get to the glory? It's a valid question, by the way. 
Verse 18 helps us understand something that kind of answers that question. It says in verse 18, For we reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Your suffering is like a drop of rain compared to the glory that you're going to feel, experience in the future. You absolutely cannot put your suffering under the same scales as God's glory. You can't do it. They cannot be compared. Then God sets forth, or, or Paul turns to, a, like a wonderful teacher that he is, turns to, to an illustration to help us understand four things, four facts about suffering. First is this. In verse 19 he says, for, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. J.B. Phillips says the whole creation is on its tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. When you and I, the sons of God, are glorified with Christ, the earth is going to go through a transformation and the curse gets lifted. So creation stands on its tiptoes longing for that moment that the sons of God are uncovered. So the first fact is this. Our suffering is temporary. As we were up at the shack last weekend, and by the way, thank you for, as a congregation, for treating us. We loved it. We'd like to do it some more. <laughs> the owner, Marv, an elderly man, he's a Christian. He's, he seems a very, very devoted Christian. He stated, him and his wife don't watch much TV. He said, we long to have a channel where they put, no put nothing on but good news. He says, it seems like the only thing that makes the news is bad news. He said, therefore, we really don't watch much television. It's equally true of our nation. We groan and we face huge problems as a nation. Where there is neither the will nor the moral fabric in our society to sacrifice and to correct them. We groan as a nation. Look around you. I think one of the latest statistics says that the the optimism is is lower than when Carter was in was the had the presidency, which was pathetic. Um, we see it on our earth. There's the drought, the disasters, Hurricane Sandy. There's the earthquakes. Um, floods, all of those things, our earth is groaning, suffering. Creation groans. There's a second, there is the second uh, fact that the suffering is the consequence of Adam's fall. Look at verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by the reason of him which has sub subjected it the same in hope. 
Moffat says, For creation was not rendered futile by its own will, but by the will who, of him who thus made it subject. You see, when Adam fell, God cursed the ground. God said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. But in all this, not once was the earth allowed to say, Wait a minute, where do I get to vote in this? Creation was never allowed to vote in it. God said, This is how it's going to be. You see, before Adam's fall, that Garden of Eden never saw a blizzard. It never saw an earthquake. It never saw a forest fire. It never saw a mudslide. There were no tornadoes, no locust plagues, no droughts until Adam sinned. Suffering is a consequence of Adam's fall. Verse 21. Because the, because the creature's self also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Just as sin enslaved creation to sin and decay, our glorification will result in earth's freedom. In other words, suffering is a means to an end. God has something in mind as he takes us through suffering. You know, in all of life, we were surrounded by this cycle, this, this, this continuous cycle. We face it every year. There is, there's the birth, there's death, there's decay, and then there's birth again, then there's death, then decay. We're, we're that constant reminder around us how fleeting life is. But the ending we find in Revelations chapter 21, when John saw, wrote, he said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 4, God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. God has an ending in mind as we go through suffering. Um, fourth fact is this. The suffering is universal. The earth is like a woman who is ready to give birth. Um, there's the agony of one contraction after another. I distinctly remember the birth of our only daughter, Alicia, of course. I remember walking down the halls of that hospital, rubbing my wife's back and trying to relieve some of the pain. And uh, as I stood at my wife's bedside, I am to this day thoroughly convinced of the pain. There was a second great spiritual truth that dawned on me at, as I stood beside her bed, and that is my survival is directly related to how quickly and completely I could fulfill each of her requests. 
But the most amazing change took place in that room when Alicia let out her first cry. Isn't it amazing? The atmosphere changed just like that. The tension melted away. You ask any of the ladies here who have children, ask them about their children. They will not talk about the pain. They will talk about the joy. You see, creation yearns for us as the sons of God to be revealed. Creation yearns that this birth would be take place and that the pain would end, the suffering would end. The suffering is universal. Now Paul turns to, to uh, Paul turns from the illustration and makes it more personal now. Not, not only does creation stand in on its tiptoes, but so do you and I. Verse 23, 23 says, Not only they, but we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Dad just recently shared a story with me. Uh, he shared about spending some time with an individual who has Parkinson's. And this man shared how he literally watches his body deteriorate. Being in the advanced stages of Parkinson's, he experienced a fall. And in that fall, of course, the emergency personnel were called. But he said during the time that the emergency personnel worked on him, he shared, I was drawn into a tunnel. I left. And I saw amazing things. God gave him a preview of the other side. He said, I didn't want to come back. But he said, suddenly I was revived. And now, though aged and deteriorating, metaphorically he stands on his tiptoes, longing for the moment to be free and to experience the glory and the glorification, the redemp full redemption of his body. Fanny Crosby, the blind songwriter, wrote, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Why would a blind person write about glory? Because they get to see. That's why. So the first godly response to suffering is having a longing for that other side, that longing to be at home with God, the longing to have, uh, to experience the full redemption. There's a second uh, response. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But we wait for that we, we see not, then do we wait with patience, wait for it. The key to suffering is found in a single word, and it's in verse 25. It's a little word, patience. Second godly response to suffering is perseverance. You're working with someone who's going through a tough time, a trial, a testing. Encourage patience. Encourage, the word patient actually means cheerful endurance. Encourage perseverance. 
Um, it's often in the midst of our suffering that we tend to take on the attitude of an unbeliever, the lost person. God, if I can't see it, I'm not going to believe it. That's why you need to encourage uh, perseverance. Some of you who are listening today have either gone through or are going through suffering. You pray and you plead with God and it only gets worse. And you think it can't get worse and it does. Verse 26 and verse 27, God put in here especially for you. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It comes so fast and so thick, that in those moments that you're emotionally exhausted and physically spent, and when it comes to prayer, you just grow. You realize the Holy Spirit groans as well. But the difference between your groaning and his groaning is God understands his groaning. The Father understands the mind of the Holy Spirit and that so the Holy Spirit intercedes for you in those moments that you are absolutely weary and don't know how to pray. If you've gone through a real hard time, you know what I'm talking about. So the third godly response to suffering is simply prayer. A man was walking past a construction, shot, a construction site and he was stopped in to watch the mason who was at work. He was working on this certain stone. The man, as he looked at the building, it looked finished to him and, and so our curiosity finally got the best of me and he, he finally asked, why are you spending all this time on this one stone? The mason replied as he pointed up to the peak of the building. He, he said, I'm, I'm shaping this stone down here so that it'll fit when I take it up there. Suffering is one of those tools that God uses in chipping and shaping our lives down here so that when you and I arrive home, we fit in up there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that you have in front of us this wonderful package called an inheritance. Thank you, Father, for reminding us that, that it's not built on the foundation of man, but it's built on your foundation, which is sure and certain to happen. But Lord, as you remind us that there with it comes suffering, I'm reminded of the words of Martin Luther, ask what you will, Lord, but please supply what you demand. Give us the endurance. Give us the patience. 
Give us the, the, uh, that bulldog mentality that as we go through suffering, we keep our focus upon you. Thank you, Lord, for shaping us, loving us enough not to remain and to keep us as we are, but to change us, to make us like Jesus. Lord, thank you that we can trust you, that as, as you chip and you shape and as we go through the fire, that one day the process will be finished and we will stand before our Lord and our Savior complete finished thank you Lord for giving us your spirit to guide us as we go through this process Lord we want to be careful to give you the honor and the glory for all of it for we ask it in Jesus name and all of God's children said Amen